I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about this new Guardian podcast we think you're going to love. It's called Comfort Eating and it's hosted by restaurant critic Grace Dent. You might know her for her refined palate and reviews of the UK's best restaurants, but this show is a much less highbrow affair. From the 15th of June, you can join Grace as each week she invites a famous guest to sit down with her and reveal what they really eat when they're home alone. There's kebab meat on chips, fried peanut butter sandwiches and lots of crisps on the menu as Grace finds out about well-known people's lives through the comfort foods they love. The Guardian. Hi, I'm Phoebe Weston. I'm Patrick Greenfield, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. And as many of you know, we work on the Age of Extinction project. It's all about tackling catastrophic biodiversity loss. We're back with another two-part series for Science Weekly. We'll be exploring the secret, and sometimes not so secret, world of wildlife crime and wildlife trafficking. When you think of wildlife trafficking, you might think it happens far away. And it's constrained to big cats, charismatic megafauna like elephants or pangolins that have made recent headlines. But some of the most trafficked wildlife is more inconspicuous, including an eel that is around the length of my little finger when it's caught, yet is part of this huge multi-billion dollar poaching business. And this, along with habitat loss, is driving eel decline. The specific eel I'm talking about is the critically endangered European eel, which to find I need to travel to rural Somerset in the southwest of England. I'm standing along the River Parrot with three hobby fishermen and the chairman of the Sustainable Eel Group, Andrew Carr. It's really hard to predict how many eels you're going to see from one night to the next, and we're hoping the stars are going to align for us this evening. You certainly need warm water yeah and there'll be enough of that but it is cold that will be a minus so who knows the tide is right the moon is at the middle peak so it's it's right for the moon it's all to do with the tides and how the moon's impact on the tides to create the maximum effect it all sounds quite mystical from a completely um (laughs) a lay person's perspective you actually get the tidal push and you'll see the tide rise and the eels, of course, being the ultimate freeloaders, will be catching yeah. the push. Yeah. yeah. These freeloaders Andrew is talking about are glass eels, or young European eels, and they're coming all the way from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. They spend the first two years of their lives floating across on ocean currents, but now they're in the final stretch of their migration, up the Bristol Channel, and through the River Parrot, where we are now with these fishermen waiting to catch them, only to release them later tonight. They move from the centre of the river towards the banks and swim against the current if it's warm enough. If it's Oh! Yeah. Sorry, there's some there. Yeah, yeah. That's rubbish. I was going to say, you haven't been doing this long enough. You don't get excited over ten this time of year. That's all right. The group may think my squeal is too much excitement, but I've never seen an eel before, although in the past our rivers would have been full of them. My first thought is that they do not look like freeloaders, as Andrew called them. They look like tiny snakes fizzing with energy. It's as if they have an electric current flowing through them, absolutely determined to make their way up the river. And a fisherman called Steve George helps me take a closer look. 
you can see why they're called glass seals. They're pretty much see-through, yeah, apart from their yeah, digestive tracts and their eyes. If you get them, if you get them down the bottom of the river, the all you can see is their heart and their eyes. But that one there's burnt. Ah, oh, the heart is the, the little um, red splodge. Yeah. There's Bert, Harry, Fred. <laughs> I also find it incredible that I'm looking at a critically endangered species. And that is why we're catching them tonight, to move them to places where they can no longer reach naturally because of human-created barriers. And we're going to visit one of them later. While tonight's catch depends on lots of factors, eel fishing hasn't looked the same way for decades. This is because between 1980 and 2009, their population declined by around 95%, according to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, or CITES. And Andrew says if you go back 100 years or more, eels made up half the biomass weight of all freshwater fish in Europe. And that's why we're packing this catch in a van and moving it upstream. What other species do you hope that it will benefit, other than, of course, the creatures who would predate on eels? Their role in the ecosystem is, is significant in other ways. They play their own world, role in cleaning up river systems. So anything that's dead that falls into the river or dies in the river, they eat them up. Um, they control mosquito larvae and other, other larvae of insects, so they're, they're eating those. Yet they play a huge part in the ecosystem. They're part of our natural history tradition. In previous years, some of this catch would go to Europe for restocking or rewilding, and also for aquaculture. But Brexit changed that. The UK can no longer trade eels to Europe, at least for now. But these hobby fishermen are still taking the time to move them upstream and they're doing this all voluntarily because despite these eels travelling all the way across the ocean, the hardest part of their huge journey might just be in the final stretch ahead of them. And that's what I was having a look at earlier today. I met with Andrew and we took a tour along some of the roads around Somerset. This landscape should be boggy and waterlogged, but it was drained for farming and now it's crisscross with roads and man-made water channels. There's actually very little wild about this place. Then Andrew takes me to the main stop he wants to show me and we climb up a small grassy mound. It's about five metres up. It's taller than a double-decker bus and probably about twice as wide. And it has these huge concrete supports on either side, which stretch diagonally down into the water, anchoring it onto the land on either side. There is a date on the side of the sluice gate, 1942. It was built during the war to create large amounts of water for a nearby explosive factory, but now it's used to regulate the flow of water through the landscape. These sorts of barriers have been put up all over the country and all over Europe as well. And so what we're seeing here is a really good, small example of what is a huge problem for eels all over the continent. Massive lump of concrete, steel doors, all around controlling water. That side is fresh water, this side is salt water. Nothing gets in or out unless man wants it to. And the problem for migratory fish is that when you open the doors to let the fresh water out, it's at such speed that an alva, glass eel, can't get in, or not in the quantities it wants to. And so the glass eels would 
literally die here, just no, in front of the barrier. Well, sort of. This is the number one fishing spot for glass eels. It was. But now the law is you can't fish within 100 metres of this point. But they used to catch a million glass eels a night at that entrance. Wow. A million glass eels a night. And uh, on an evening like tonight, this is the sort of number that would be trying to get into this estuary that the steel doors block. And they're presumably sitting ducks when they're trapped there. Oh yes, I mean the, the predation, they, they eat each other and then you have all sorts of other predations from seagulls to, to fish-eating herons and bitterns and cormorants yeah. and they're food for everybody. <laughs> These days, of course, we hope that they aren't being caught by humans. The UK fishery is very controlled. Hence, you can't fish within 100 metres of this obstruction. So that's no fishing at all to protect the eels. Exactly. This law is significant because, as Andrew says, fishing wasn't always prohibited. People have been fishing eels for centuries and it wasn't a problem until it became apparent that populations were plummeting from overexploitation. As a result, regulation was brought in to control eel fishing. And this is when people turned to trafficking. Thebes, the eel is an animal that doesn't cross my mind a lot, and I think that will be true for most of our listeners. And when I think of eels, criminality doesn't usually spring to mind. How big is this problem? Well, Europol, the EU's law enforcement agency, has been working on this issue, and it estimates eel trafficking to be a 1.5 to 3 billion euro business per year. I wanted to find out more about this issue of trafficking and how people are tackling it, so I connected with Europol's team leader for environmental crimes. My name is Jose Antonio Alfaro. I have been a police officer for uh, 22, 23 years. Jose is leading the team cracking down on eel trafficking. Smugglers are moving the European eel from Europe to Asia. And Jose says demand for this illegal activity increased when Japanese eel numbers fell, but demand for eel meat stayed high. If you want to grow eels, you need the baby eels. You have to harvest them from the rivers. Therefore, they have a problem and they focused on European eel in order to supply the farms in Asia. The criminals took advantage and started just to smuggle the baby eels with sophisticated modus operandi. And this is the origin of the illegal business. Jose says that most of these eels are caught in the UK, Spain, France and Portugal. And then they're shipped to countries where demand is high, such as Japan, South Korea and China. And smugglers have some very creative methods of moving them. Once the glass eels are in the containers, criminals have hardly 40, 48 hours to make them arrive to the final destination. Otherwise, the glass eels die. What they do is that they pay a courier with a couple of three suitcases. And within the suitcases, they put baby eels in plastic bags with frozen bottle of water and they adapt inside the suitcase to accommodate the baby eels. At the arrival in Asia, someone is waiting for the courier and takes the suitcases and accommodates the baby eels in the farms. So this is how they work. In a suitcase, they can smuggle, let's say, around 12, 13, maybe, kilo of glass eels. In each kilo of glass eels, you find out 3,000 specimens. 
So it's a huge quantity of baby eels, which mean a lot of money six months after when they make the eel meat products. This is a, probably the most important wildlife trafficking crime worldwide in terms of figures and in terms of money. And obviously, as you've mentioned, eels are part of traditional cuisine. We've eaten them for a long time. Presumably, it became illegal to trade eels from Europe to Asia because they became an endangered species, because we were so worried about the catastrophic decline in populations. The millions and millions of eggs and specimens of eels feed many other species of marine, sharks and whatever whatever other species. So it's a sort of global issue. Jose says these environmental reasons are why Europol is taking the issue so seriously. In 2015, they created Operation Lake. It targets endangered species trafficking from multiple angles, including the associated activities of document counterfeiting, money laundering and environmental crime. Europol estimates that at its height, 100 tonnes of glass eels were trafficked on an annual basis. Jose says Operation Lake has decreased illegal trafficking of eels by about 50%. And the recent uptick in European eel populations is a really great sign. Jose believes they can crack down even further on eel trafficking. This is important to mention as, as well that the environmental crimes is going to be again a priority for the next policy cycle. We are not happy with the 50%. We want to go for more. Phoebe, there are so many stories of environmental crimes where law enforcement isn't taking action or there just aren't enough resources to tackle it. But 50%, that's a huge reduction in trafficking. I found it so encouraging hearing Jose talking about how environmental crimes are going to be a priority for Europol in the coming years. And I think it's exactly this kind of dedication that can really make a change, just like the dedicated volunteer fishermen I met with in Somerset. Back with Andrew and the eel crew, we arrive at the release site. It's called King Sedgemore Drain, an artificial channel. It's around 20 metres wide and it feeds off the River Parrot, where we were earlier. It's almost totally straight and has earth banks on either side, covered in grasses and reeds, and it's a great habitat for eels. Traditionally, they would have come here on their own and enriched the river ecosystem because eels have evolved to thrive in these waters. And these waters thrive with eels in them. Oh, there they go. We've caught 600 eels to release tonight. To me, that's loads. But to this group of fishermen, that's a pretty small catch. And they keep checking in to see that I'm not disappointed. Oh, it's not disappointing when you've never seen them before. No, that's it. All being well, some of the eels we've released tonight may one day make it back to the sea where they came from and spawn. While the gates make it difficult for the eels to come in, the eels should be able to leave through the sluice gates with a gush of water when they open. Andrew is also leading a campaign to get eel-friendly passages put into as many of these barriers as possible. See, they're swimming. Oh, yeah, they're swimming out. Wow, and they're off like a flash. (laughs) I watch these eels swim away, and they're so small and translucent, they soon disappear into the dark waters. 
It's so easy to see why we rarely think of them. From being on the brink of extinction, it seems the recovery of the European eel could be a fantastic conservation success story. Next episode, we're going to be talking about other wildlife we don't often think about, but that wildlife crime continues to threaten. Plants. When I started realising that it was, it was probably a big problem was when just chatting to people casually and they knew that I was researching this and they would just be completely open about how they got illegal wild plants, how they smuggled them themselves across borders or how they bought them online. You've been listening to the Age of Extinction Takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. This episode was produced by Tiffany Cassidy. The executive producer was Max Anderson, and the commissioning editor for Age of Extinction is Max Bonato. The Age of Extinction project is supported by the Band Foundation, the Wiss Foundation and the Oak Foundation. If you want to find out more about this content, head over to the podcast page at theguardian.com. We've received lots of lovely emails since we started these podcasts, so keep them coming. If you have any thoughts, feedback or ideas for future episodes, drop us a line. The email is scienceweekly at theguardian.com. See you Thursday. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs>